Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. BuzzConf is a nonprofit open space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open, and you can find out more at www.buzz-conf.org. Alexa London is a one-day conference on the 17th of August that encourages inclusion and diversity within the Elixir programming community. To help do this, ticket prices are low, with Early Bird at only £119 plus VAT, and there are also 30 free scholarship places available. Jose Valine, the creator of Elixir, is confirmed to keynote, and the full schedule is online. Visit www.elixir.london for more information and to register. Compose Melbourne is back! Compose Melbourne, the sibling conference to the New York-based Compose Conference, is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of August 2017 at RMIT, Melbourne, Australia, with presentations on August 28th and an unconference on August 29th. The keynote is by Andrew Sorensen and is titled Sound Synthesis in the Computational Crucible. For more information and to register, visit www.composeconference.org slash 2017-Melbourne. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated and for more information. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference co-located with the pre-conference events at StrangeLoop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. This conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a StrangeLoop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp delivers two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. Tickets are currently on sale and early bird pricing ends June 30th. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. Rackacon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington, with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professors Dan Friedman, the co-author of Classic Reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, the inventor of Minikanron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.bracket-lang.org. Lambda World is back taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margaret Seltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced, and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference 
for functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single track talks on Thursday and Friday and an all day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Adam Chapala. Adam, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So today I'm on the computer science faculty at MIT. I got into programming in, let's say, elementary school, writing Q-basic programs and that sort of thing. And at some point down the road from there in high school, I became interested in compilers and programming languages and developing both of them. I was an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, took an ML programming class that was required for all CS majors, and that was my introduction to functional programming, which I've used for most of my projects since then. So I went to grad school at Berkeley and got into using the Calk Proof Assistant in the first project that I joined there. And Calk also has, has been the main tool behind most of my research projects since then. And today I see a big part of my mission as a researcher as getting over the idea that because the phrase theorem proving looks a lot like the word theory, then this technology is just kind of a curiosity off to the side. We won't use it to integrate into our daily lives, building high-quality computer systems. So I, I try to show that their improving is actually a secret weapon for improving the way that we build systems. And most of my research is building systems sort of a medium scale, and the systems include machine-check proofs of their correctness, and the proofs themselves are subjected to a lot of the same engineering considerations as the, the software, including breaking them up along modularity boundaries, putting lots of code in version control, doing continuous integration, optimizing the performance of the proofs themselves, which most people who hear about this have to sort of reorient their views of the world to get a sense of what that could mean, optimizing your proofs. So basically, there's this whole interesting, relatively new discipline of proof engineering that is a big focus in my work, which has a lot of challenges we need to solve if we want to have more correct systems at scale. And you got put on my radar from a listener recommendation, and they found you and said, hey, can you get Adam on to talk about some of his work in Cock, Urweb, and some other more proof and formal methodologies? So you get exposed to ML at the beginning, but you've been playing with computers and you had experience programming before that. Do you recall what that first jump was when you made that leap to say, here's some ML, and now I'm going to go on with this? up until you actually got to the point of even doing cock. So what was that first transition of just going from standard common programming languages that you would get exposed to as a kid to actually being encountered via ML? Well, when I met ML in this class as an undergraduate, it just made sense to me. 
I didn't want to go back to the, the bad old way with all the complexities of tricky state interactions everywhere and writing the same code over and over again because you didn't have higher order functions. And so I was learning this back at a time when almost no mainstream languages supported higher order functions, at least in the style that we're used to from functional programming, where you have lexical closures that will capture the free variables in the environment. And today, you could get a lot further. You could avoid these kind of complaints using almost any widely used language except for C and a few related low-level languages. But it was a big deal back then to be able to realize these kinds of code reuse that only functional programming was offering. And so you pick up ML, you start running with it, and then you make the transition to go even further down the line and go to COC, which is proving instead of just dealing with the assurance of types and high-order functions. So what was the transition that took you from an ML into COC to start your path down this proofiness that you're wanting? I think it's a pretty similar story in that I entered in a context where people were already using this kind of tool where I needed to use it to contribute to the project, and it just sort of clicked. I think theorem proving for me and probably a lot of other people out there is a great match for their natural paranoia where they justifiably don't trust their own ability to write many lines of code and get them all right. And it's just such a relief to have a way to know, yes, you got them all right. Although there are some complications surrounding what right means, and then you need to get your specification right. But that's usually a much smaller thing than the whole program. And the theory program has interested me for a while. And I've seen some stuff just back and forth at very high levels, going back to the old college textbooks as well that talked about it in the abstract where it was just more like you have these formal proof methods that you would just do by hand and mainly tracing back to the ideas of punch cards were expensive, compute time was expensive, so you're proving your stuff out by hand. But that kind of brought up some of the scars of middle school, high school math where prove this thing and then if you miss one step, all of a sudden your proof is wrong and you're screwed up your whole proof and you've gotten lost down a tangent. So I'm interested in this from the idea of the paranoia, but there's also that little scar. So when you introduce people to these concepts and you're trying to spread this, what are some of those things that you find to reassure people or sell people based off their improving their software? Well, the key difference from using a proof assistant like Cock versus the school experiences you described is that with the proof assistant, you have continuous automatic feedback about the correctness of every step that you take. So it's not like you're going to make a small mistake in the middle of a proof, and then a week later you get back your graded paper and the whole thing turned out to be incorrect. It's much more like getting the little red squiggles underneath a mistake you make in a program as you're typing it into an IDE. It's continuous feedback. You get error messages just like you'd expect from a compiler, but they're talking about sort of logical errors in an argument instead of traditional typing errors, and you can immediately fix your problem and get back to work. And you always know everything you've entered up to this point is logically sound. And there's just an empirical fact that most really dedicated hackers, when they give interactive theorem proving a try, become pretty addicted to it. It's been described as a video game kind of experience. There's some quote about that from a paper by Xavier Leroy, the creator of OCaml, in his work on the CompCert Verified C compiler, he describes the experience as a video game one. And I forget if he said addictive or not, but this is what people experience. When I have new students coming on board learning to use Calk or similar tools, they'll often neglect their other responsibilities in life, not 
spend as much time on their homework assignments for classes as they used to because they feel like, oh, I'm just almost there with this proof. And when I get there, the system's going to tell me, good job, you proved it. And it's such an endorphin rush when you get there. It sounds like some of that argument with test-driven development and some other things that I've heard about where it's this continuous feedback loop then, and you make these small steps, and all of a sudden you get this little hint that says, hey, yeah, you're on the right track, keep going. Hey, yeah, you're on the right track, keep going. You're making progress. And it's that constant reinforcement kind of thing is what you're alluding to? Exactly. And so as you go on and you're moving in and you start doing all this research and you're getting hooked yourself, what were some of those first things that made you see the applicability of this and decide that you want to pursue spreading the word and doing more research about theorem proving and proof assistance? And what were some of those domains that you saw to begin with that said, if I can start to hook these people in, this is a good hook that would get us going, that started you down the route of going and digging deeper and doing all this research on proof assistance? Well, I guess there are at least two different kinds of answers I could give. One of them is about particular domains of software that are especially good matches for this kind of technology. So one of those were essentially where I started working is compilers. A nice property of a compiler is pretty much everyone agrees what the specification is. Namely, somehow define behavior of a program and then the behavior of the program the compiler outputs should be compatible with the behavior of the program that was input into the compiler. So we don't have some of the usual concerns about what should I prove about my program. One of the classic complaints about the applicability of formal methods, which I've been hearing since I got involved in research in this area, is that a lot of important programs don't obviously have specifications that are simpler than the programs themselves. So a classic example would be a word processor or a web browser. What is the specification? It seems like it needs to be so huge that we can't even have high confidence that we picked the right theorem to prove. Nice thing about compilers is the natural specification is much shorter than the compiler, especially if it's an optimizing compiler. The specification says nothing about performance, nothing about tricks to get programs to run faster. It just has basically an interpreter for the input language, an interpreter for the output language, and we say sort of give the same results when we feed in the input and the output of the compiler. Another kind of answer I can give, instead of talking about domains that are particularly rife for applications of theorem proving, is to just talk about the overall technology of mechanized proofs and what that can deliver to programmers and fundamentally change what we need to worry about when we're building systems. So effective software development is a lot about finding ways to break a big problem into small problems that are more tractable. So we all know it's important to use encapsulation, APIs, tasteful design of libraries to simplify our lives. And we want to reuse code that other people have produced as often as possible. But one challenge is thinking about the interfaces between components and the contract that a particular component exposes to the world. And we know static typing is one great way to approach these challenges systematically. Give every component in your system an expressive static type. And functional correctness theorem statements are the next evolution of that kind of approach. One of the members of a project called the Science of Deep Specifications, you can find us on the web at deepspec.org. And actually, we have a summer school going on right now. 
this is a project about considering the implications of the story I just started telling, which is developed together with the other members of that project. And we're really focusing on interfaces between components, thinking about how to use computer theory improving to simplify the problem of component reuse, building big systems without having to do as much work as you would constructing it from scratch. And we want to have complete proofs of functional correctness for these systems. And a really nice solution shows up in that setting to this problem of so many components have unclear specifications, we worry we'll get them wrong. And the way that that shows up is that we have these webs of many components connected to each other. And in some sense, each component makes some assumptions about others that it imports, and then it exports some functionality. And we can consider there's some sort of API that is exported by each component. We do want to write a specification for every API, but it turns out some APIs are, in the end, only used in the internal layers of the system. So an example would be, you built a project using a C compiler, and you have some application on top of it that's being compiled, and then the code runs on a processor underneath. And you have a formal specification for each layer. You have a semantics for the C language, you have a spec for your application, and you have a semantics for assembly language, and maybe a semantics for some sort of hardware design layer at the bottom. These different pieces, these interfaces snap together in a linear sequence. And let's say you manage to prove a theorem about the whole system saying, when I assume that this is the meaning of my hardware descriptions, I'm able to provide the API of the top-level application. It's no longer possible when you do that for any error in the C compiler to break the soundness of your system. The C compiler and its correctness argument have been completely encapsulated inside the system. So the final result you have only raises the danger that you got the application spec wrong or you got the hardware description spec wrong, but nothing about the C languages is there anymore. So to the extent that we have complex components that wind up encapsulated inside larger user-facing systems, then we dodge this question of how are we going to get the specs right? What if they're so huge? We will catch any mistakes in them, no matter how huge they are, as long as they're internal to the system. You are still left with the need to do testing at the exterior interfaces of the system, but these are hopefully much simpler than the complete functionality. In particular, we see that the importance of unit testing is greatly reduced when you look at the world this way, because unit tests are mostly concerned with functions and other units of code that become internal to the final system. You want to get them right, but if you're doing a full system proof, you'll necessarily catch any internal mistakes in the course of that proof. So really, the model becomes you only need to test the specification of the full system. And this, when it makes its way out there into practice, I think will be a revolution in how hard developers have to work to come up with correct code. And from my outside view understanding, this is also similar to some of the generative testing, property testing ideas as well, where you're defining the things that hold true about your system, but now you're actually using a more formal language and having something else logically prove it versus getting a whole bunch of examples that run and just blast it and try and come up through exhaustive testing or something similar, but actually using the logic around it, correct? Yes, there are good connections with ideas in generative testing. And actually within our DeepSpec project, Benjamin Pierce is leading this uh, sub-project called Quick Chick. It's like Quick Check, except it's Chick, as in a baby chicken. 
as caulk is a chicken-oriented word. It's a project that takes caulk specifications and uses them to drive generative testing, which you might do before you're convinced enough to undertake the cost of a full proof. You can do testing inside of caulk using the same specifications that you're going to eventually use in your proof. And with that clarification is a lot of these generative testing stuff are done in the same language that you're working in. So if you're in Haskell, you've got the Haskell version. If you're in Clojure, people have quoted it to Clojure or whatever language. Caulk is a separate language that you're running against your program outside and you're kind of inspecting it from the outside, correct? So there's some interaction and tooling there that needs to be set up and worked around and Oh, this is a sort of complicated question to answer because Caulk is such an open-ended, flexible environment that there isn't just one interpretation of the question and not just one answer. It does have a built-in functional programming language. So if the programs that you're verifying are written in that language, then everything is, is just as integrated as it would be with Haskell and QuickCheck. However, you have another option, which is to do a so-called deep embedding of a language. Basically, define a type of syntax trees, like if you're building a compiler in Haskell or ML, maybe even for the very same language that you're coding the compiler in, you just define a type that captures the syntax of programs. And then you can, if you're in a proof assistant, now you can reason about those programs as mathematical objects. You can define the semantics of programs, and you can refer to that semantics in theorem statements. So with this approach also, you have a very tightly integrated style of programming and proving. There's another style, which I've never really been a fan of, but which is possible. Namely, have some kind of tool that takes a program in traditional ASCII syntax for some other language and generates caulk code that corresponds to it in some way. That might be a syntax tree for that language. It might be that you've somehow translated from this other language into caulk's functional programming language. If you do it this way, then there is a more complicated story of integration and workflow. But personally, I try to push for a future where the proof assistant has become the IDE. You're always in it. We don't try to do the equivalent of saying some programmers will write the code, some will write the tests. We know this is not a very effective way to get work done. People are going to spend a lot of time writing code with unclear specifications. Different programmers will be very uncertain about how to interact with each other's code. So just like we would say, write the test for your own code, I think in the future, programmers will write at least the theorem statements, and possibly also the proofs for their own code. So it's important to have an IDE that lets you do that. Caulk, with tools like Proof General and Caulk IDE, is already there today, though of course we can imagine refining these tools further. But you can write programs in a variety of different languages in a single source file, and right next to them textually put their theorem statements, put their proofs, and this really pays off. I think we should be able to take all the mental effort going into unit testing and put it into specifying and proving instead for at least some important classes of systems. And we're getting all that set up in your research and across all these other people and this deep proof group, and you're making progress towards this. So how are you seeing this kind of transition into this? Because it's not like I can just, in a day job, come in and say, well, now I want to introduce cock with whatever languages we're necessarily doing, unless we do that weird translation stuff that you're not a fan of. So where do you see this kind of moving forward, pushing towards for adoption? Well, I think like with many new technologies, adoption is easiest in a setting like a startup company where you don't have a big base of legacy code and you can make decisions up front about what's the best development methodology for your product and pick it up from day one. 
it's probably also true that Koch and its related ecosystem are not quite at the point where it's responsible to say, oh yeah, people in real-world development context should routinely adopt this approach. We're still learning a lot about the best practices. Like I said, it's such a general platform that it isn't even clear what it means to use it in a project. There are so many choices to make up front just in the basic framing of, are you going to deeply embed another programming language inside of Kalk? There are a variety of different issues in how you actually get the runnable code in the end. There's this traditional feature of extraction that Kalk and other proof assistants support where they'll generate programs in languages like Caskell and ML. But there are other approaches like we use in my Bedrock project where we work inside of Kalk and use a variety of tools to generate syntax trees for assembly code. And of course, we've proved the assembly code correct. And then we pretty print it into a standard tool chain and get native code with reasonable performance. And we've done a similar thing in a project called Kami, which is all about verification of hardware designs, where we're computing inside of Kalk syntax trees for a subset of the Verilog hardware language, and then pretty print that into standard tool chains. These are the kind of questions that, justifiably, a real-world programmer would, would be wondering about. It's pretty important to get actual runnable code out of your system. And especially, depending on how much you care about performance, there are real subtle issues and which are these techniques you'd want to pick. And part of this goes hand in hand with A, if someone's interested in this, how do they start pushing this down and where is that? And B is you're working on Urweb and that's a language using cock and formalized proofs for doing web development. And it's one of those things that if I want to do this, get into it, where are some of those A, where's those domains for starting as someone getting into this? And B, what are some of those domains that kind of help sell that and say, web development has an external contract. You have get set put HTTP contracts in the specification. Where are some of those other things that kind of fit between the good boundaries, for examples, of seeing how you have a problem domain like Urweb and how do you start using it as someone who's wanting to dig more into this stuff. And we can use Urweb as that example as well. Well, I should say that Urweb is not literally based on Kalk. It's actually inspired by Kalk. You don't have to write proofs in an Urweb program. That's one of the selling points of it. So I'd consider this a kind of a, another branch on the tree of topics that we could potentially go down. Uh, just to answer the other question about getting started with the world of machine check proofs, my main recommendation there is an online book that probably uh, many listeners have already come across. It's called Software Foundations, and uh, the main author is Benjamin Pierce, though quite a few other people have contributed. It has a great track record of taking people roughly with the equivalent of an undergrad CS education and getting them started with caulk and proofs, even if they aren't in a formal class environment. A lot of people self-study it and have pretty good results. Also, our DeepSpec project has uh, summer schools, probably about one a year. I mentioned there's one happening right now. And if folks are interested in hearing about future ones that they might want to sign up for, where we introduce Kalk in a variety of different settings oriented around correctness of systems, you can find a subscribe link for our mailing list at deepspec.org. And we would love to see plenty of people signing up for that in the future. So at this point, there are two paths to go down. I could talk about Urweb next, or I could keep talking about Kalk. What do you think is appropriate at this point? Let's move into Urweb in just a second. But we talked about just if people are getting in and they're using this book from Pierce, 
and they're going in, they're getting this. Where are some of those things that you think the formal proof systems work? I've had past guests on talk about lean, where they're trying to do things like TLS and other variations. But if you're going to give someone some domain ideas that you say, here's one of those things that if you're going to try and do something, this is where those good examples are now that if you're going to pick up a toy project and try and implement and just as the side for experience, here's your breakable toy. What are some of those kind of domains that you see cock and proof assistance being really strong for now or soon in the future where it's like heart bleed and all these other things that have these vulnerabilities, but if we could put a proof behind it and eventually within the next five or 10 years, wipe out some of those things. What are some of those targets for proof systems? Yeah. So in terms of good starter educational projects, I mentioned compilers already. I think that's a great example because it's so clear what you want to prove about your compiler. So that's a case of the method is good fit because it applies in such a streamlined way. You also have mentioned the example of security critical software, which is also a great fit because of how much society cares if systems like that are correct. And we have had these widely publicized security issues like Heartbleed, which you mentioned, which have led a lot of people in the cryptography community to think hard about systematic methods for promoting correctness and security in the code they're writing. And I've gotten involved in that area myself. We have a project called Fiat Cryptography, which is automatically generating efficient low-level code for the moment elliptic curve cryptography, which is one of the key ingredients in the TLS 1.3 standard, which I think is still in the process of being finalized. And basically what we do is we take mathematical specifications of algebra, and then we automatically generate assembly level code that implements those specifications. And the funny thing in this domain is crypto programmers really need our help with streamlining their development processes We have these standard algorithms that are parameterized by large prime numbers that are used as moduli for arithmetic. And when you pick a different prime number, the experts actually rewrite the assembly code from scratch. I'm not just saying pick a different algorithm. I'm saying pick a different prime number as a parameter. And basically, the reason is our compilers for C and other languages don't understand enough about optimizations for modular arithmetic to get the most performance out of this code. So we actually have written a library of functional programs that capture the algorithms that are being handwritten in practice. And then those programs can be specialized to different prime numbers as the moduli. And you get out code that can look quite different across moduli, but it's all based on the same proved functional programs. So zooming out a little bit, I think you're right that the area of security critical software is a really great opportunity today for this kind of code. We're, we're seeing a surprising amount of interest from practitioners in adopting the framework that we're building. And there are many other opportunities out there in cryptographic software, anything with a strong security angle. Ideally, also, it's a relatively small amount of code, but nonetheless, with an intricate correctness or security argument, that's probably the sweet spot where it's both worth the effort to invest in the proof and where there are potential customers out there who will see the value of what you built. And it's always nice to get those examples when you hear about these being an industry, some of this academic research that's coming out that says, well, I know there's applicability somewhere because otherwise they wouldn't necessarily 
be researching this, but where does that fit in and what does that future look like? So it's nice to be able to get a rundown of these things, to be able to have it on our radar so we know where these tools might be applicable and when we should be looking for these things. So that's a nice overview to have as well. Yeah, if I'm going to make a bet on where proof assistance will make a big impact in terms of widely used systems in the near future, cryptographic code would probably be what I'd go with. There are a lot of promising signs, a number of groups working on it. Pretty much anyone you talk to who is on the practitioner side of this is really enthusiastic about bringing stronger assurance. It it seems to be headed on a good path. And I guess now we can talk about Irwin. So I was under the impression, just looking at your page as well, thinking that it was actually done in Coq with all your other Coq work. But so this is a different language. Can you give a rundown of what Irweb is and where you kind of fit in with that interest on the proving as well, since you said the proofs are optional in Irweb? Right. So Irweb is a domain-specific language for building web applications. And by that, I mean the whole shebang of web applications. One buzzword that goes along with this concept is tierless languages, meaning you're going to write code in one language and then it gets compiled to all the different languages and roles of a traditional web application, which is usually divided into the web server, could be running whatever code you want, the client or the browser, which needs to run JavaScript, and then some kind of database engine. In the case of Verweb, the one that's built in is SQL. So uh, you're going to write one statically typed program that combines all these elements in a single language and has appropriate compiler checking for the harmonious interaction of those different parts. And in terms of the baseline language features, Urweb is basically a mashup of my favorites from the the well-known statically typed functional languages. So from the ML family, Urweb inherits eagerness and the module system. From Haskell, it inherits purity, type classes, and monads. And then here's where we get to that last part of your question. The most unusual features come from the world of dependently typed programming, with examples like Calc and Agda. So from that world, Urweb brings in type-level computation and higher kinds, both of which sort of found in limited forms in Haskell, at least GHC Haskell these days. But Urweb really sticks more to the traditional dependently typed programming view of these and essentially lets you do interesting programming at the type level, where it's really functional programming. It's not, if we take the analogy of the type families feature that Haskell picked up recently, it sort of feels a little different from normal functional programming, and you don't get as good support from the compiler for reasoning about the behavior of those programs, which becomes necessary to type check code whose type is written in terms of type families. So. Urweb is meant to be a highly practical language. I have a long-standing interest in frameworks and languages for the web, and I think Urweb is probably roughly the fourth one of these that I've designed. I built it to be what I want to use to build web applications, and that's what I do today. I really enjoy when I have the excuse to build some sort of new functionality with Urweb. It's it's real, it's production quality if you're running Debian or one of the Debian-flavored Linux distributions like Ubuntu, you can run apps, get, install, Urweb. That's U-R-W-E-B, all lowercase, no punctuation. It's in Homebrew with, with the same package name. And I personally use it to run services with combined user base of a few hundred. And I know there's at least one person who built a commercial service with a few thousand paying users. So it's more than just a 
a research project, and it's a little harder to summarize than a research project because I spend time working on whatever seems important to make this practical for people who already buy into static types and functional programming. For people who are scared by Haskell, they would be petrified of Urweb. But people who love Haskell tend to really like Urweb too. And there's an interesting idea there that you said that this is the domain-specific language for your whole web app. So this is putting across JavaScript, whatever backend server code, and the SQL side that you're running. So how does that play in? Is that just a bunch of these different modules that represent, here's your client side, here's your backend side, here's your query storage. Is it all kind of intermingled? So when you send a request back, the request looks as the client side content. At a high level, what is this thing structured like if you're able to take advantage of all the different parts of the tiers and write that and express that in a single DSL? I think the way that question was phrased brings up an interesting point, which is you mentioned, do we just divide the program into modules that encapsulate these different parts of the traditional system, which might otherwise have been written in different languages? And this connects to, say, the idea of the model view controller paradigm which is really kind of like a religious principle in the mainstream developer world these days. You're not allowed to question model view controller. You're not allowed to say, maybe it would be a better idea to have the presentation and the business logic interleaved with each other. And my claim is it is so much better to interleave them because then you can have one first-class object in your programming language that stands for this whole part of your application and encapsulates all the details about the server side, the client side, the database. And Urweb supports that model. Let me first describe kind of the low-level way this plays out. When a request comes in over the web, it's asking for some URL. The compiler has generated a mapping from URL prefixes to functions inside your application that know how to serve those URLs. And this mapping is created automatically based on the names of functions in your program. And so the runtime system decides, all right, I just got a request. I need to call this function in the application. And that function starts out in server mode because it's on the server. You're answering a request. But then this function is going to generate an HTML page. It's essentially using a combinator library to put together pages in a way that guarantees syntax and well-formedness via typing. And inside those pages can be positions like event handlers on tags, say an on-click handler. And when you move into the value of the on-click handler, you've now transitioned into client-side mode. So all the code there will be automatically compiled to JavaScript, though it looks syntactically indistinguishable from the server-side code. Compiles into JavaScript and runs on the client. And sometimes you need to jump back into server mode. And the way that works in Urweb is remote procedure calls. So you can write the keyword RPC before a function call in client code. And then that indicates a jump back over to the server, which will be implemented by a further HTTP request in the AJAX style. So then imagine we jump over to another function running on the server, handling this new sub request we've generated, which itself can output HTML code, which might have further within it nested more client code. So we can sort of jump back and forth to an arbitrary nesting depth but the transitions between levels are always explicit. Namely, we go from server to client when we move inside an event handler in HTML, and we jump back from client to server when we explicitly ask for a remote procedure call of a named function. 
Another one of the, the transitions is between server and database. So the client isn't allowed to query the database directly, though it can always make a remote procedure call that will happen to talk to the database. We can embed SQL syntax inside of our web programs and then just say, run this query and give me the results and everything in both directions to and from database is completely statically typed to the web programmer. It just looks like we're sending records of statically typed values back and forth. And the whole way this is set up, we get the benefits that you see in earlier tierless languages as well. Like in general, the whole class of code injection attacks is impossible. There's no implicit interpretation of strings as programs in Urweb. You instead rely on static type checking of all the code from embedded languages like SQL and HTML. And that's sort of the baseline of how all this is orchestrated. And there are some fancier features in abstraction and modularity that I could talk about as well, but maybe I should pause here. So it sounds like it's defining it as terms of components is the module level then. And then inside that, you just call out this function. And when I call this function, this is going to be JavaScript versus if I call this function, this is going to be a server side by prefixing it with the event handler or the RPC modes then. Right. Going into an event handler switches from server to client and the reverse direction is the RPC keyword. And so at a certain point, if you're going down the model view controller, it's more the original model view controller definition, I guess, from... Uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, Trigvi Rinskaug, where it's everything's just subnested of model view controllers, not this one giant model view controller at the top level. But I guess one of those other things that I'm thinking about as I ask this question is, does that mean you get some of the ability to say, I've got this function to find and I might do this on the server via RPC and on a event handler? So if there's verification stuff, I can actually kind of reuse the same Urweb code across both sides just by prefixing this is this is done inside the RPC side and this is done inside the event handler side and then it gets generated to both. Yeah, you can definitely take the same function within a single program and have it run both on the server side and the client side and then it would just automatically be compiled twice, once to native code for the server and once to JavaScript for the client. There are functions. And in fact, most functions that you'd bother to RPC are going to use some resource that only the server has access to. So those would not be legal to run directly on the client. And likewise, there are some things clients can do, like popping up an alert box that the server is not allowed to do. So in practice, most functions, I would say, have some tie to one of those two sides that would keep them from being used indiscriminately on the two sides. That's what I would imagine. But things like a lot of this validation where... If you're in a standard web model where I've got to write the validation code on the client and then I've got to hopefully make sure it's in line with the same validation and proof of correctness of input fields on the server that says, well, you didn't specify a first name when you pass it on and you want to make sure those boundaries are there. I can validate a user's input for a billing address or credit card information is good on the client and then also validate it on the server to make sure that it's coming in both directions, then, right? Yeah, all of that should work very naturally. You don't have to do any extra work to get this code ready to run on both sides if all it is is a pure function. And then when you talk about this higher-level abstraction, that's the high-level view of how an web application is structured. What are some of those things that you also mentioned it's pure, but what are some of those 
deeper advantages to tease that out for those people who might be doing Haskell or MLs that would be a selling point to say, check out Urweb besides just what you can do in Haskell or what you can do with this other than the single idea of a tierless web application. What some of those other teases for the audience that might get them hooked as well? Yeah, let me talk about the possibilities for modularity in Urweb. So the whole language is set up following what's called an object capability discipline, where which values or variables are in scope for a piece of code tells you something very strong about what that code can do. And we're used to this in even in, say, Java programming, where you build a hash table, and maybe it's a class, and it has a private field, which is an array, but code outside your class can't mess with that array directly. It has to go through the public methods of the hash table class. So Urweb supports that same sort of thing, but brings into scope other kinds of parts of a web application that can be first class and can therefore be confined inside different modules of your code. So some examples, an SQL database table can be first class. You can essentially have a private table inside a module of your code which other parts of your application provably cannot access directly. They only get to it through the public methods exposed from your module. You can do the same thing for cookies, pieces of information that the the client stores and returns later to the web browser. You can do the same thing for subtrees of HTML pages. So you can have really guaranteed encapsulation for UI widgets, where they can think of themselves as owning a part of the document tree, and the language prevents anyone else from interfering. And the way that last one works is basically by a variant of functional reactive programming, where we describe the web page as a pure function of some first-class dynamically allocated data sources. And if a part of the page is described by a function that only depends on a subset of the data sources, if your code has encapsulated all those data sources, then you are now in control of what appears on that part of the page. And there are some really great advantages from a code reuse perspective of this kind of encapsulation. So in Urweb, a module can have private database tables and client code that calls that module doesn't need to know what those tables are. In particular, the set of tables can change in between compilation runs and everything will just keep working. And the full potential of this you really see when you have in ML module parlance what are called functors or functions from modules to modules. And the output of a functor can contain private database tables. So in effect, each time you instantiate some generic functionality, you get new tables created silently. Just like if you have some container data structure in Java and you instantiate it at a new type, you don't have to worry about how it's going to work internally. Everything just fits together. You can instantiate abstractions like data structures in in Urweb in a way where they privately create new database tables that make them work. And I've used this in a framework called the Urweb People Organizer, UPO, which is a library for Urweb that has a bunch of general components that will come to life and specialize themselves to your database schema. Also creating private supporting tables so that you as the user of the library don't need to know about any of this. And you can very quickly spin up new applications that do basically pushing around of data from place to place with UIs that solicit input from users and support some sort of cross-user interaction. The key is to be able to have the abstraction of a module where when you tell it certain parameters, it creates a specialized version of itself for you 
And in the process of doing that, it might create new private database tables and various other resources that other languages haven't supported before this. I'm not quite sure I get the whole picture, but from what I'm picturing at this point, that sounds like an interesting concept. And just real quickly, does that mean that things like the higher kind of types play into this as well, where some of these common structures can start to feed back into just subsections of the table? So if you're going against a table and it could be a customer, it could be a contact, it could be something, but if they have these common fields, you're limited in scope to only seeing that part of the interface then from a higher kind of type of that table? Or is that something, am I picturing some of this wrong from a outsider's view of how this is working? No, the, the higher kinds are, are really important for describing that kind of interface. So when we have a, a module of the kind I described that's ready to specialize itself to your data schema, we want to assign a static type to the module that guarantees no matter how you ask it to specialize itself, it will behave properly. And the way we describe those module types uses higher kinds and type level computation in an essential way. Basically, what happens is you come up with some type level data that can be fed into an algorithm that runs and produces the literal schema of the part of the database you want to deal with. And the game is to choose the right algorithm so that there's enough flexibility in its inputs so that the client code can choose the right input so that when you run the algorithm, it produces exactly the schema that they want your module to interface with. And making this work nicely depends on new type inference ideas that hide this complexity from the authors of client code, where you don't usually need to think in terms of, okay, I'm calling this module. My job is to invert the effect of a functional program that will produce my schema. I need to figure out which parameters will cause it to do that. In most cases, the Urweb type inference system is able to do that inversion automatically. So it isn't any more complicated to call one of these fancy metaprogramming modules than it is to, say, call list map in, in Haskell or OCaml, where we're used to complete type inference. Now, the type inference is not complete in Urweb. In fact, we can prove it's undecidable because it's such an expressive language of types and type-level programs. But in practice, client code that calls these generic components almost never needs to even write a type annotation, let alone the kinds of proofs that you would see in Coq or Agda with similar code. And that's going to take some parsing and thinking about, on my end, I'm sure, and the benefit of editing these over a couple of times and listening to put together the show notes should help this sink in for me. So I'm looking forward to just absorbing this some more in the process of putting this show together. But we're coming up on time. I want to save some time, but we kind of touched on things. We threw things out like proof optimization and a bunch of other topics. So we might need to get you back on to dig into some of these other things we just mentioned in passing. But is there anything at this point that we need to necessarily bring up before we continue on with the episode or anything that has come to your mind that you think is worth further mentioning? Maybe I can just give a few more sentences with the high-level sales pitches for other aspects of Urweb. So I'll just mention, first, Urweb has a very pleasant high-level concurrency model. There's no fine-grained interleaving of threads. Instead, the conceptual model is your application is distributed on machines across the world. At any moment in time, one thread is running on just one of those. 
And then, of course, the real implementation uses high parallelism for performance, but presents the illusion that you're in that simple world where one thread is running at a time. And this is based on database transactions on the server side and the natural way of doing things on the JavaScript side. So there's no need to think about surprise context switches or any of those other really tricky concurrency issues with Urweb. One other distinguishing characteristic is that Urweb has a very effective whole program optimizing compiler. Binaries that run on the server side don't need garbage collection. They tend to be very memory compact. Compilation goes via C on that side, and we're usually using native C types. For evidence of the performance benefits, folks can check out the Tech Empower Web Framework Benchmarks which is a third-party effort that's comparing different web frameworks for performance. At one point, though things have shuffled around a little bit, Urweb was the highest performance framework on the test that they emphasized first on their website, with a pretty big gap from most of the competitors, including Haskell. And there are also some higher-level optimizations in Urweb, like, for instance, the compiler can automatically introduce sound caching of SQL query results, as well as automatically adding cache and validation logic. Because it can do a whole program analysis of exactly which query patterns your code might possibly execute, which is harder to do in a, say, more traditional framework where SQL queries just come out as plain text and the compiler doesn't understand what they're doing. So I think that should cover it for the the overview of Urweb. I'm trying to think, is there something else I want to say about Cock? Did you have a list of subjects that you wanted to return to? No, I think we covered a lot. I'm sure there's more subjects we'd want to turn to, but that could turn this into a two or three hour conversation. So sure. I might need to get you just back on to continue this in the future. But you mentioned the concurrency, and that sounds like an interesting idea of we generally think of a single web request going through at a time anyway. And so it's inherently non-concurrent because you don't want your concurrency and my concurrency to interact with each other anyway, even though they do. But from a conceptual standpoint, to be able to picture that as there's only ever one request at a time, so you don't think about that. But on the server side, are there tricks that you do to take advantage of inherent concurrency or parallelism that can be taken advantage of while not thinking about it? Thinking from the ML and Haskell side where I can run this thing at any time. So if I have five database queries, if they're all isolated, I can run those at any time and then stitch them back. But you still think sequentially, even though it can be done concurrently and paralyzed under the covers, but you don't have to think about that? Or is it still straight? Well, there's this classic idea in the database world of transactions where the system allows you to use an API where it appears as though you're running a series of query and update operations sequentially with no interference by anyone else's code. And Urweb builds on this in a way that relatively little code out there today does. I think most web programmers, I don't know if they have heard of transactions or not, but you see systems like NoSQL, which are notoriously incompatible with transactions. And there's this beautiful idea that's been around for decades that programmers are just not taking advantage of. They're subjecting themselves to the complexities of reasoning about concurrent interleaving threads when they could be using transactions and there are so many production quality systems that support them well. So Urweb is really all in for transactions on the server side, builds on top of the standard support in database servers like PostgreSQL. And there are a few additions in the Urweb runtime system that happen to play well with this. For instance, many web applications need to have notifications from the server to the client. 
say, because you received a new email message. And it would be inefficient to just keep having the client contact the server every second saying, do I have a new message? Do I have a new message? So instead, you use something like WebSockets or long polling. And in UrWeb, the sending of a message from the server to the client is brought within the transactional abstraction. So it always appears as though if a single transaction triggers a bunch of message sends, they all go out at once. And if the transaction winds up being aborted for some reason, then none of them go out. And it turns out to work really well to say that all persistent state is in the database. This means every action that an application takes is relatively easy to undo or roll back. And databases traditionally signal, oops, I wasn't able to meet my concurrency contract because too many things happened at once. I'm going to need you, that transaction right there, to start over, and hopefully things will go better this time. Most mainstream web frameworks force the programmer to catch exceptions about that explicitly for every different database access and then decide what to do about it. UrWeb just automatically rolls back everything in the current transaction and starts over, which is possible because of design decisions like having thread local heaps, so there's no way for them to interact with each other through pointers, which also has good performance consequences. So to sum this all up, this is building on the classic database transaction idea and just thinking about a few modest changes to a language runtime system to really put transactions into the DNA of the language and build them into the semantics. That automatic concurrency retry and failure is something that sounds amazing because I've been bitten by that enough times and have recently been bitten by that again, where multiple writers trying to write the same thing with a prefetch before, but you get the race condition where, oh, in this case, we had two requests come in at the same time to go create a user with the same email address because someone double-clicked or something. But having it taken care of where that second one just fails and automatically retries sounds amazing. And the database research community basically solved this issue in the 1980s or earlier. And it's really scandalous that so few programmers are aware of it. Well, I meant even have as a programmer having to handle that specific exception and then start over versus just, oh, uh, we got an exception. We're going to just go on and treat it as if nothing happened because that data is still in there. So we've got the transaction saved and the second one failed versus retrying again and doing something even if it's in the law. So having that be automatic as well sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to program it. Well, we're coming up on time, so I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I want to leave you the opportunity to plug anything else you're working on, any other projects you should lean people to, any other resources we haven't covered that you think people should know about, or do you have any other conference appearances or other things you mentioned? The summer schools you mentioned, the, your group projects you mentioned, the getting started in COC, you mentioned some other web and how to get that. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure people know about or any other projects? you think you should point people to? I'll just do a quick plug for another project. This one's in Calk. It's called Fiat, F-I-A-T. And it's a system for automatically generating efficient code from specifications. Taking advantage of the fact that Calk has this very general scripting language for building procedures to find proofs automatically, which we've essentially co-opted for procedures that find programs with their proofs automatically. and It's sort of a generalization of domain-specific languages because with Fiat, the programmer can introduce new notations for programming. For instance, we have an SQL-style notation for relational data access and some notations for parsers described with grammars or in other ways. Basically, you can make up whatever notation you want, explain it as a set of macros in higher-order logic, 
and then separately write scripts that know how to compile that functionality to efficient low-level code, such that those scripts also generate proofs that the code is correct. And so we're looking at this as, maybe to get a little overly grandiose, a demonstration of, of what might the most important future role of functional programming be. I think the era of functional programs that we think about running directly is maybe over or close to over. To me, functional programs are most valuable as specifications. And we want a very general way of compiling each specification to the most natural, efficient, low-level code. And Fiat is a framework for doing that. And we're really excited about the possibilities for new kinds of abstraction and modularity that are supported when you essentially have an extensible programming language with an extensible compiler. You use functional programs to say how programs should behave, and then the compiler takes over and gets them to be fast probably based on annotations in your program saying what performance you need for each one of the functions. So we're currently looking at the example of building a DNS server in this way from a high-level specification that has essentially no optimizations built into it. And then we run some automatic translators with proof generation that add the optimizations after the fact. And for the people who've already started to make this step towards proof assistance and cock and some of these other ideas and they're a little bit further ahead, where should they be looking to look at Fiat and what's going on? Is there a project page? What's the best place to find more information and find out more about and keep an eye on that if that's something that intrigues them? Well, a good overview would be the paper that we published a few months ago at a conference called Snapple, S-N-A-P-L. And in general, if, if folks just go to my homepage, there'll be a link to the Fiat project which wouldn't exactly want to say it's a maximally up-to-date part of the web, but there is information there. <laughs> and then do you have any call to actions for some of these projects that if people are interested, that they should be able to go find out? Now, essentially, besides just finding out more, is there anything that, if there is a listener out there that's intrigued about this, what the next steps they should be taking are, just in general, whether it's or web or some of the cock stuff that you need help with or the fiat project is there anything that you would call out to them for well i think urweb is the most production ready of the systems that i talked about and i think the best opportunities to contribute there are in the library i mentioned the urweb people organizer which is a set of components that know how to instantiate themselves to different database schemas and there are so many different kinds of reusable functionality for this style of web app that I would love to have contributions of, of new components that could be added into that library. And in general, there's a pretty healthy community of Urweb users who follow the mailing list and are happy to support newcomers trying to apply it in all sorts of different projects. For Calk, for people who don't already know how to use the system, I would again recommend the Software Foundation's online book. and I'm not sure any of my projects are well-documented enough in, on, in the cock end for me to want to encourage people to start hacking on them. But let's put it this way. I'm always interested to hear from people in industry who have ideas for where program correctness proofs could be applied to make their companies, their products more effective, including within our deep spec project. We're trying to, to open that dialogue and get a sense for what could be the first big successes of, of theorem proving in the real world. So uh, I'd love to hear any thoughts from practitioners about that. 
And you mentioned your homepage. You mentioned the Urweb mailing list. We'll get links of the cock pages, the deep spec pages, and all that. But besides your homepage, is that the best place for people to find you? Are there any other places for people to find out what's going on, keep updated with you? Any other accounts that you want people to know about or be able to follow? I think everything is reachable in a small number of clicks from my homepage. So I'd be be happy to have that as the only link that would be approximately optimal. That sounds good. And I'll get that in the show notes along with all the other references and topics that you've talked about as well. All right. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Adam, for taking your time to join me today. It was a bit over my head, but (laughs) it gave me good insight and started to paint a better picture. So apologize for the stupid questions and lack of context, but thanks for taking your time and putting up with them to help give a better picture of where this all is fitting and what might be on the roadmap going forward. Yeah, it was great to talk to you today. And I hope I've exploded a few heads today that will gradually reassemble themselves and start using cock. <laughs> You've definitely pushed my boundaries some. And I, as I mentioned earlier, look forward to editing the show, absorbing this more. And we'll probably definitely need to get you on in the future to elaborate more on these topics, whether it's cock or proof optimization or any of these other things or more Urweb process. So look forward to talking to you at some point in the future, but thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.